On April 14, 1912, the RMS Titanic sank in the Atlantic Ocean. The ship had been billed as unsinkable and marketed as the most luxurious thing to ever happen to travel. As a 90s kid, I learned a lot of what I know about the Titanic tragedy from Leonardo DiCaprio, Kate Winslet, and Celine Dion. But Ellen Emerson White's Voyage on the Great Titanic filled in lots of gaps too. This fictionalized journal of a young girl named Margaret Ann Brady was one of the most popular installments in Scholastic's Dear America series and was originally published in September of 1998, less than a year after the James Cameron film that rocked pop culture's world hit theaters. In Voyage on the Great Titanic, the orphaned Margaret Ann Brady is offered the opportunity to work for a wealthy American woman named Mrs. Carstairs. In return, she'll get to travel first class on the Titanic and reunite with her brother in America. Sounds great, right? Well, we all know what's coming for Margaret and her fellow passengers, which makes for an interesting and emotional reading experience. My guest, I think, puts it best in today's episode when she says simply, this book slaps. I agree. You are about to hear us rave about basically every aspect of Voyage on the Great Titanic, but you can also expect conversations about the way the author manages to establish tension even within a story with an ending we already know, the way class is handled in the book, survivor's guilt, and Titanic mania. We consider why we as a culture have been so obsessed with the Titanic and why kid readers get away with consuming so much spicy subject matter. We ask ourselves, where and why exactly did we learn maritime vocabulary? This book is heavy, but I still enjoyed every minute of this interview. Today, we welcome Kelsey McKinney to the show. Kelsey is a co-owner and founder of Defector Media, author of the novel God Spare the Girls, and host of the podcast Normal Gossip, which you can find wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Follow Kelsey everywhere on social media at McKinney Kelsey. We read Kelsey's book God Spare the Girls in the Patreon book club last year, and Kelsey offered to film a special video answering questions from club members. I have been a huge fan of hers ever since, and it was very cool to have the chance to actually chat one-on-one. God Spare the Girls is one of many great picks we've had in the Patreon book club, which is also known as SWR or Shit We Read. This week, we kick off our June discussion about Emily Henry's People We Meet on Vacation. I absolutely love reading with this group, and I can't think of a better way to get my summer reading rolling. You can still jump in. When you become an SSR patron, you also get access to a slew of other exclusive rewards, like newsletters, reading recap videos, an invitation to our Discord channel, bonus episodes, and more. Check it out at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast, or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. If you enjoy the content I produce every week, I encourage you to consider coming on board. You can join Patreon for as little as a dollar per month, and it's a great way to show your love for the pod and to help me keep it going. In big SSR news, we have finally relaunched the free SSR book club. The new SSRBC is essentially a streamlined version of several SSR-related Facebook groups. It's a place to discuss new episodes, get a sneak peek of what's coming on the show, organize buddy reads and informal book clubs, and generally talk about books search the SSR Book Club on Facebook to join. There's also a link to the SSRBC in SSR's Instagram bio at SSRPod, 
You can follow the podcast on Twitter at SSRPod too. Summer is here, and if you have travel plans or beach days on the horizon, you'll need things to listen to once you're caught up on SSR episodes. Libro.fm is where it's at. Libro.fm is an audiobook marketplace and listening platform that's a fantastic alternative to Audible because it allows you to support independent bookstores instead of a giant corporation. The audiobooks you get will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPODCAST when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Kelsey. Welcome to SSR. Hi, Ali. Thank you so much for having me. It's so fun to hang out with you today. I, I told you this before we started recording, but I had such like the pleasure of reading your book, God Spare the Girls, for one of our Patreon book clubs. And you were the first author that was kind enough to just offer, like without being asked, to answer some questions for us. And you sent such great videos, like really diving into our questions. And so I feel like we're friends already, although this is the first time you're actually meeting me. So I just feel like we're old friends hanging out. Yes. Hello to the book club. Hello to you. I also feel like we are old friends. I was so flattered when you asked me to answer those questions because, you know, it's my first book. And often with first books, you don't have like a built-in group of people who want to read your work. And so I was just like, you were the first book club that was ever like, will you answer these questions? And I was like, oh my God, I would love to. (laughs) Oh, wow. Well, we hold a special place in each other's hearts then, I guess. So we're all in love, which I think is beautiful. Yeah, I think that means we're bound for life. Mm-hmm. Yes. Great. Excellent. Our wedding will be next June. Please yeah. come. Yeah. Everybody is invited. Look out for the save the date. It's going mm-hmm. to be lovely. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that's going to be lovely, Kelsey, is this conversation today. Great. It was a good segue, right? Beautiful. I love a great transition. That was impressive. Yeah. Yeah. I I didn't have to think about it too hard, but when it was happening, I was like, ooh, that was really good. Ooh, smooth. Smooth. (laughs) Okay. So today we are talking Dear America. And not only are we talking Dear America, but we are talking, oh yeah, you're holding it up to the camera. You're caressing it. I have it. I love it. So beautiful. Moments like this, I wish that we were on video, kind of. Um, (laughs) Then we would have had to put makeup on, or I would have. So that wouldn't be ideal. Yeah. No, I would have too. Yeah, we don't need to do that. So we are we are talking about Voyage on the Great Titanic, the diary of Margaret Ann Brady, 1912. Mm-hmm. Kelsey, yes. tell me everything. Why did you want to read this book? Were you a big Dear America fan? Were you all about the Titanic? Like, I just need to know the whole history. Oh my God, yeah. Okay, so when you sent over, you like sent, there was like a list of books that I could choose from and it was like, you know, when you see like a video on TikTok or something of like a toy that you forgot that you had and it like something like clicks in the back of your brain and you like remember having this thing. 
seeing that list of books like unlocked a treasure trove of memories in my mind because I was the right age for these when they were coming out. And so the library at my school and in my town had them, but they would they were always like three months behind when the new one was come out coming out. And I would have to like wait on the list for them. And it was just like absolutely brutal for me. And I remember that this book I got for my birthday. My mom got it for me for my birthday. And so it was one of the only ones that I had like on my shelf as a kid. And so I was so excited to read it again because I was like, I don't think I've read this probably since I was, you know, since I was the age that they were marketing it to. And I read it. I mean, I remember reading these like breathlessly as a child. So I was amped to return. That's so special. And I hope you don't mind me bringing this up, but you've talked pretty openly about how you were raised in the evangelical church. And I was curious kind of just to see what book you would choose. And if that was a book that you had read when you were a kid, or maybe if you would like go rogue and choose something that I would imagine maybe you like weren't allowed to read when you were growing up. I think it's really interesting that like, this is a book that presumably your parents were like excited for you to read. Did you find that there were a lot of books that you were like not permitted to read? Like what was your pop culture consumption? Like given the fact that you had this very specific childhood. So my parents are both very evangelical, but my mom really does not like evangelical culture in general, Mm. right? Like she was like, I will not be listening to the like KLTY family evangelical station in town. She was like, why would I listen to that when Prince exists? Which is honestly a great point. It's a good question. Yeah. So they had a little bit of a more loose reign on me with like my consumption of popular culture than a lot of evangelical families had. But I think also I was just like a little hard to keep in check in that I was like reading so voraciously and so quickly that like they didn't, I don't think they had any idea what I was reading. Like I remember when I was like in, whenever the Harry Potter, the first Harry Potter book was published in the United States, I think I was in like first or second grade. And I read it immediately, right? Like it came to the school library. I read it. And I remember like two or three weeks after that, my parents were like, yeah, there was a kind of satanic panic around the book. And my parents were a little bit like, oh, you know, we don't know, like, if you should read this, like, we'd like to have a conversation about it. And I was like, I already read that book weeks ago. And they were like, oh, okay. (laughs) Uh, I guess that's fine. (laughs) So I think on some level, they were just like, you know, reading, she loves it. It's good for her. So like, fine, read whatever you want. So yeah, I read all of these. But in reading this recently, I was like, oh my God, who allowed me to read this as a child? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we've talked on the podcast a couple of times over the years about the fact that like, I think many kids who grew up thinking of themselves as bookworms Mm -hmm. also fancied themselves as rule followers and like would generally not step outside the bounds of what their parents or caregivers wanted them to do. But there's something funny about a book. (laughs) And I think that so many of us were able to like, quote, get away with reading a lot of things because (laughs) at least in my experience, if my parents saw me reading, they were like, oh, cool, cool. Like she's reading. Um, And that's better than watching something weird Mm -hmm. or like too mature on TV. And so when I've come back to revisit a lot of the books that I read, and I remember being scandalized by things like Gossip Girl or like mm-hmm. the Jessica Darling books when I was a teenager. Right. Or did you read like the Meg Kabat Princess Diaries books? Yeah. Like uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I just, I think my parents were like, oh, whatever. All she ever wants is books. So that's fine. <laughs> and it is amazing how I think all of, all of the rule following 
book-loving kids out there actually were consuming like potentially more sort of like spicy content than their TV watching counterparts just because they're just there there wasn't a lot of suspicion happening. Yeah. I was texting a friend of mine about this book last night because I was like preparing to come talk about it. Yeah. And I emotionally. Was, like, yeah. Emotionally. Yeah. And I asked her, I was like, oh, did you read these books? And she was like, yeah, of course I read those books. Like everyone our age who was a book girl read these books. Like they are yeah. formative. And I was like, this book is like traumatic. Like it is so hard to read, honestly. Like in a, it's beautifully written, but I was like, this is so crazy reading this. I was like, why did our parents let us read this? And well, not that I think it's like that bad, but I just, my parents had no clue that I was reading this. Right. And Molly was like, as if they could have read at the same speed we were reading. Right. Like mm -hmm. there was no way that my parents could have kept up with me, much less decided what I could read. Right. So like, I don't know. I'm glad I read it, but I'm kind of impressed with myself. I was like, oh, this is not like the easiest read. I'm impressed that childhood me was just breezing through these. <laughs> yeah. Good job, childhood Kelsey. I wanted to start this conversation just kind of with a broader chat about the Titanic and why we are so fucking obsessed with it <laughs> as a society. Great. I'd love to. <laughs> a little context. Of course, the Titanic incident took place in 1912. I've done some research about why we love the Titanic. I don't know if I buy into all of it, but just for the sake of the timeline, the James Cameron movie, 1997. Mm -hmm. This book, 1998. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that publishing takes a long time. So I, I kind of think that maybe like this book was in the works, you know, several years before. I certainly don't think that it was like a response to the James Cameron movie, but it is interesting that they both came out at the same time. I would imagine that the James Cameron movie was in production for many years just because it was like such a huge movie. So maybe like this team at Scholastic caught wind of it and they're like, oh, we should add this to our series. I think it was the 11th or 12th book in the Dear America series. So this these books were already rolling and doing pretty well. Here's, oh, while we're talking about things that we were and were not allowed to consume. Please. Titanic. Like, when did you oh, see it? I did not. So we had Titanic on VHS. I remember because I used to play with the VHSs with my Barbies, right? Like to like mm. create homes for them. But of course. Obviously. And it was a two, it was a two VHS movie, right? Because it was like so long. Yeah. But I wasn't allowed to watch it as a kid. Like I didn't watch it until I was in college. So it was like forbidden. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. I remember in elementary school, everybody mm -hmm. talking about yeah, it, which now that too. I've seen it, I'm like, I cannot believe that like <laughs> the majority of my like, I don't know, second grade classmates had casually watched this movie, if for no other reason than it's so long. It's like so long. <laughs> I do not have that kind of attention span as a 31-year-old, let alone as a seven-year-old. So I can't believe so many kids watched it. I think I probably saw it for the first time when I was in high school or so. Mm -hmm. I have to say that rereading this book made me want to watch the movie again. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm, I was thinking about like if I could watch it tonight because I was like, do I have time to watch yeah. this after just reading this? And But they are kind of like they have some similar choices. Yeah, they really do. I just want to know, like, do you have any theories about why we are all so fascinated? by the Titanic. I also did the same research you did in that I was like, when did this book come out? Because it doesn't have, weirdly, it doesn't have the like Library of Congress thing at the front of it that most mm -hmm. books have. So I had to Google it. And this book came out in September of 1998. Titanic yes. is December of 1997. 
So they're like, what, nine months apart? Mm-hmm. Which means you're right. There's no way that it's a response book because like your copy edits are done six months out. So like right. this book was done before James Cameron's Titanic came out, which is just fascinating. Like I'm sure the author of this must have been thrilled because of like the wave of Titanic stuff. But I don't, I don't know. I think that like the 90s were such a weird time. And like there was a lot of like disaster core going yeah. on in the 90s, just in general, right? Of like movies about like Survivor was about to come out, right? Like this kind of like the wave seemed to be building towards like this kind of disaster survival movie at that time period. So I think that might have something to do with it. But it's also just very, it's a very romantic tale, right? Like the sinking ship, the big boat, right? Like it's very cinematic. Mm -hmm. And so I understand, I don't, I mean, I don't know why James Cameron did it, but I'm glad that everyone was obsessed with it because now I get to consume it. Yeah. And there's so much out there to consume. So I found this very long article from mm -hmm. Smithsonian Magazine that I will link in the show notes along with Great. a few other things that I found. I'm not going to lie. I did not read every <laughs> word of it because it was so long, <laughs> but I, I got the gist. Too. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, it was better than Wikipedia and I did, I did read parts mm -hmm. of it. And Smithsonian Magazine, this is an article from 2012, breaks down our kind of like worldwide Titanic mania into three waves. Okay. So the first wave came immediately after the disaster. And the article talks about this baby who was nine months old. She was the youngest survivor of the Titanic. Okay. And when she, you know, was like rescued and came back, this is so creepy, but she became like this symbol of like the triumph of the human spirit in the face of this okay. kind of crisis. And people would line up to hold her in New York. Oh my God. She was like grumpy cat, but a baby. Like Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's terrifying. Exactly. And she was the last person to die too. Like she, I think lived right. to be 93. So, so she oh, died wow. I think, in like the late nineties or early aughts. And so she was this enduring symbol of the catastrophe. Yeah. But she remembered nothing because again, she was nine months old. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sure she spent her whole life like being asked questions that she couldn't answer. So there was a lot of buzz obviously right after it happened. I think there was like a silent film made or like a newsreel, mm -hmm. which at that time was a huge deal. So then the second wave, according to the Smithsonian Magazine, came in the mid-1950s in the midst of the Cold War because the Titanic represented what they describe as a containable, understandable tragedy as opposed to okay. like the ongoing tragedy that was happening at the time. Right. Obviously, we sense. can argue that that tragedy is still going on and on and on and on, but yes. Okay. <laughs> so then in the early 90s, they dove down, I guess, to the site of the Titanic, oh, and they recovered right. 6,000 artifacts, which were then brought back to France. And I think the theory is that that's what kicked off this like last big wave of Titanic mania, which then led to the James Cameron movie, presumably inspired the team at Scholastic to add this story to their list of Dear America books. And Smithsonian also says that it's been said that the name Titanic is the third most widely recognized word in the world after oh only God. God and Coca-Cola. That, I believe it. That makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. I mean, of course. And then I found this really weird article from a site called moms.com. Not okay, sure why moms.com is covering this. 
but they <laughs> offer a list of 14 reasons the Titanic still fascinates us. I buy into some of them more than others. Mm -hmm. um, the first one was really about this idea of tempting fate, which I do think is really interesting to people, how the Titanic was advertised as unsinkable. And that was like so much of the appeal. Of course, like you said, Kelsey, there's this romance to it, not only because of like the grandeur of the boat itself, but because there were also these like real heartbreaking love stories that came yeah. out of the the journey, not only where like maybe people were meeting and falling in love, but we have women and children first, women and children first, and then some yeah. women choosing to stay behind with their husbands. Like I read a story about, I think the co-president or the co-founder of Macy's was on the ship and he was going to stay, of course, to like let women and children on because that was the expectation. And his wife was on a boat and then she got off the boat yeah. to be with him. So people are drawn to that kind of like messed up melodrama. Um, yeah. But it's so interesting to me that, that the Titanic is a thing that endures because I don't know if you've heard of this book, but a couple of years ago, I read a book called Salt to the Sea by Ruta Cepetis. And it's in it's a YA book. I have heard of it, but I have not read it. It's a beautiful book. And it's about the tragedy of the Lusitania. And I mm -hmm. knew very little about the Lusitania when I read it. And it's because all that I have learned about ships is related it's to the, the Titanic. Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> I did at one point in this book, she's talking about like right after she boards the Titanic, she's writing about how like there's a whole new vocabulary you have to learn, right? And yeah. she's talking about like, you know, learning like, starboard and port and stern and all of these like words and I remember vividly being taught those as a child like being taught the boat words in like PE class and I'm like was that related to the Titanic like why were they teaching us that like I was <laughs> it was the early 2000s and I lived in Dallas like eight hour drive from the ocean <laughs> like why I weirdly remember learning them at a bat mitzvah. And I know what? this is going to shock you. <laughs> I know, but I think my, there might be people out there who know what I'm talking about. So okay. at these, there was like a wave of bat and bar mitzvahs that I attended in the early aughts. And of course you would go to the, the temple for the service. Mm -hmm. And then there's like a huge party, like right. at the scale of a wedding generally, especially in the area that I lived, there was, there was just like a lot of big parties happening. And there was a game, and I think that there's a twist on it that's like maybe Coke and Pepsi, where like the DJ calls out Coke and Pepsi, and you're supposed to like run to a certain side of the dance okay. floor. But I remember there was a stretch where they were using this maritime vocabulary to like direct oh, us to different parts of the was. dance floor. Yeah, maybe you were playing that game in gym class. Wow. But why? Like... <laughs> <laughs> but why? <laughs> why are we doing that? Right. Doesn't like we're making really. sense of it, but we shouldn't have to. Yes, I agree. It It is fun though, I guess. Like, yeah, I mean. Reading this book, I found extremely enjoyable, even though like I know a lot of Titanic lore. I've seen the movie. Like I found it a very fun book to read. I'm so glad. I mean, this is going to be a very, this is a big statement that I'm about to make uh -oh. and a very hot take. Uh-oh. Ooh, this might be my favorite book I've read for the podcast this year. Whoa. That is a hot take. I know. It was fun. It like, okay. Honestly, I mean, fun is maybe the wrong word. It was heartbreaking. This book like slaps, to be honest. Like the writer of this is very good because like the thing that was like so interesting to me about it is the whole tension of the book is that the reader knows that the Titanic is going to sink, 
but there's nothing in the book about that, right? Like it's like the whole tension for the first four fifths of the book is just your sinking dread that you know the Titanic is going to sink and this girl does not, right? And like that is a kind of a masterful writing work in that like it's hard to do that to make the tension of the story something that the reader knows and the character doesn't know and like the pace continues yeah i still was like what's gonna happen i was like i I don't know like this seems like it's so much fun did you think that she was going to die (laughs) oh my god okay so i got like a third of the way into this book and i was like wait does she fucking die like i was like wait I was like, it's a book for children. So like, theoretically, she shouldn't die. But I'm also like, I have vivid memories of reading these books and then being like highly traumatic. Like it's like the girls in these books are not having a good time, generally. Like they're having a bad time. A bad time. I was prepared for her to die. Same. (laughs) I was like, she's going down. (laughs) Right. I was like, there's going to be, you know, sort of a fake author's note about how Mm -hmm. these were diary entries uncovered from the ruins of the Titanic and then, you know, like painstakingly restored for modern consumption. I was prepared for some sort of a cliffhanger Mm -hmm. where maybe it cuts off halfway through a sentence and we're like, oh no, it's happening. But then she, she starts talking about like weird occurrences and it's like maybe two thirds of the way through the book. And I was like, oh, okay, great. Like she's, we have a long way to go. I think she's going to be okay. What did you think about our girl, Margaret Ann Brady? When we meet her, she's living in a tough spot. I think this book also does a really great job of exploring so many of the harsh realities of this time. Yeah. Margaret, for example, is living in this convent. She's 13. She's been living there since she was eight years old when her parents passed away within a few months of each other. Her brother kind of like tried to hold it together for them after they became orphans and they were living on the street and he really was doing the best that he could. But she got really, really sick and he left her on the front step of this convent and basically was like, I'm going to go like make us some money so that I can improve our situation. And she's been living among these nuns and their students ever since. What did you think about her early on and just kind of her circumstances? I like that she's kind of a like demon character Mm. like I really liked that she has such a personality of like just mischief that I thought was really nice but I did like reading her backstory which is like interspersed throughout the first third of the book right it's not like immediate that you learn how she ended up in the orphanage is just devastating right it's like the descriptions of her being on like her brother leaving her on the front porch and it's freezing cold and like he doesn't turn back to wave to her right like Ugh. her hearing the voices of the nuns saying like well can we take her in if she's this sick what about the other children like that kind of stuff it's just like this book is like what if you recovered all of your childhood traumas like what if mm. you just remembered them all at once right like it's so right. sad and it's like it's just like her life is so brutal, but I think the part of what's gorgeous about this book is that the tone of the book is not like that. So it's like, she is saying like, oh, this is a hard memory that I don't want to think about. But then she tells us about it and it's not like, oh, woe is me, right? She still has the like spirit of a 13 year old and that she's like still trying to do pranks. <laughs> she's still trying to like get a smooch. Right. She's still kind of like a problem for these Mm -hmm. nuns. She's really into being clever. Like she Mm -hmm. loves to to kind of come in with these sharp comebacks to things. And she's really smart and really quick. 
And the nuns, especially Sister Catherine, who's her like, you know, heart and soul and Mm -hmm. looks out for her at the convent is like, it's not always the time for you to be clever. Like you have to know when to use that and when not to use it. But I agree with you. Like she's a pretty happy kid. Mm -hmm. She's resilient. Oh, so resilient. And she has this little friend named Nora who she looks out for. Which it kind of it was kind of giving me like um, little orphan Annie vibes, yeah. where Annie looks out for that little girl. I don't I know. know Molly, I think her name was, and it's a similar relationship where Margaret looks out for Nora, and that's the hardest goodbye when she does end up leaving the convent to go on the Titanic. Reading this book is so funny as an adult because I am sure that as a child, you're like, all of this makes perfect sense, right? You're like, these things all flow right from one to the other. As an adult, I'm like, okay. So you're sending a 13-year-old girl with a random stranger across the ocean to a completely different country, and her brother is there but has no idea she's coming, and also you have not heard contact from him or confirmation that he knows she's coming? I'm like, this is the worst idea I've ever heard. (laughs) Right. Like, no arrangements have been made. Yes. Like, there's a version of this story where, one, she drowns in the Titanic, but two, the worst fate, kind of, is, like, arriving in America with no chaperone, no money, and no, like, security. And, like, these are some crazy decisions made by the adults of this book. (laughs) Yes. I mean, this story, like, a lot that we've read for the podcast, it just puts into such perspective how far we've come in terms of the way we are able to communicate with each other. Mm Mm-hmm. Like one of Margaret's big concerns is that she has written a letter to her brother, William, who is in New York now, because she wants him to know that, hey, like I'm coming to New York, surprise, it's all happening much faster than we expected. But she, A, doesn't even know for sure that the letter was sent because the postal service (laughs) is just like not that reliable. She doesn't know how long it's going to take for the letter to get there. Mm -hmm. And because she hasn't been in regular contact with him, because it's just so slow for people to connect, like... She doesn't know where he lives so that like she could even kind of drop in on him if she got there before he got her letter. So it's very stressful to me and making all of these like very tenuous plans without really knowing what the end result is going to be. I I can't imagine it, especially for a 13 year old, like you said. Yeah, it's wild. I I also realized reading this book that I just like do not understand how technology works. Like, you know, Mm. when you're on a plane and you're like, how does this Wi-Fi work? Like, how is this? How is this possible? When they get to the part in the book where they go to like some office where there's guys sending telegrams, I was like, what? Like one, I was like, I have no, I clearly have no idea how telegrams work. Two, like how are they sending them in the middle of the ocean, right? Like I was just so floored by this. And I was like, oh, no wonder like you're having to send all of these letters is it's like the other ver- the other option is telegram, which is like also not that consistent. Right. And how do we draw the line from like telegram to phone? I don't to I don't know the I mean, I, I quite frankly, I don't know the difference between the technology and where does the fax machine fit into all of this? I don't know. No clue. If you asked me to explain how my phone worked, I would rather just die. I can't do it. I have no clue. No idea. Yeah, me neither. If anybody has more to say and wants to illuminate us, please. I would love any to know how Telegram works. <laughs> yeah, please let us know. So Margaret gets kind of like what feels like the the break of a lifetime. And I pulled out kind of the description of the job that she's landed with an American woman named Mrs. Carstairs. Mm-hmm. 
can't say I was crazy about that character name. Um, maybe she was like a real person who was on the boat. I don't know. But here is what Margaret wrote in her diary about this job. She says, mainly I gather I am to be polite and agreeable and to fetch and carry and otherwise help out with whatever she needs at any given point in time. I assured her that I would have no problem complying with these rules, although I am afraid her loud tones will grate on me. Naturally, I did not share this concern. <laughs> okay, so she's basically just going to be like the go-to girl. And yes. her other big job is to take care of Mrs. Carstairs' dog, who is named Florence. Florence. I've decided that should I be lucky enough to add another dog to the family, which I'm really hoping to do, I want to name her Florence. It's a great dog name. It's so yeah. cute. Yeah, I mean, my current dog is named Irving, aka Irv. So oh. Irving and Florence feels that feels like they go together. That's Irv beautiful. and Flo. If anybody wants to email my husband um, mm -hmm. endorsing this idea, I'm happy to spread his contact information far and wide. Just <laughs> let me know. I think it sounds great. But what did you think about this arrangement? Like the fact that she's she doesn't ask a lot of questions. She's like, okay, great. This is the coolest boat in the world. I'm gonna get to go. This sort of cuts out all of this other unnecessary logistics creating of me getting on their jobs so that I can go to New York. Like she's like, great. I'm set. It makes perfect sense to me that a 13 year old would agree to this. Yes. Right. Like it does not make sense to me how any adult agreed to let her do this, but like any 13 year old, if you were like, Hey, would you like to babysit this dog and go with this very rich <laughs> woman on an adventure? Most 13 year olds are going to be like, yeah, <laughs> like I would like to do that. So like, it makes sense to me that she would say yes, but I like that like from the get-go, she does not like this woman. Like she immediately is like, she's annoying. Her dog is like kind of difficult, but like I want to go to America and see my brother, so I'll put up with it. Yeah. Also, this boat sounds pretty sick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the author is also kind of playing with this cultural tension between Margaret as a British little girl and Mrs. Carstairs as an American. Yeah. And most of the people that Margaret ends up interacting with on the ship, because she's of course like running in circles with Mrs. Carstairs friends are Americans and she's mm -hmm. never been exposed to Americans. And I'm sure there was a lot of research done across the board, but certainly about how some of these encounters would have taken place at this time in the early 20th century. And Margaret just kind of thinks these Americans are generally ridiculous. She thinks yeah. they're really gullible and immature. None of them understand her jokes, which I think is something that like <laughs> we hear a lot even in 2022, yeah. like this whole concept of British humor that's often just inaccessible for mm -hmm. Americans who have a very different sense of humor. And I don't know that that's something that I would have picked up on as a kid, like these cultural tensions, but it was really fascinating to read about now. Yeah, I was really surprised by like how, it, how much this book is doing. Even in the early pages, there are a lot of things that like I know about now as an adult, right? Like I know what Piccadilly Circus is. I know what the East End means in London, right? Like as a child, there's no way I knew what these meant. And I just must have like breezed right by them, right? Like that's not important to me understanding this story and just kept going. I feel like that's what I must have done with the like American British tension as well, right? Of like, just kind of like, oh, they don't get her. Like she's just too kooky. But like the specific call out of nicknames, I loved, right? Like the fact that every single time anyone makes a nickname for someone else, she's like, this is so embarrassing. Like, why must they behave like this? And I loved the fact that a lot of this book is very class conscious. Like it is doing a lot of work 
in saying like the rich are living a completely different life and they are basically oblivious to everyone else on this ship. And Margaret says many times, like, I'm only friends with the wait staff, essentially, because they're the only ones that I have any culture in common with. And at the same time, Margaret, like, definitely thinks she's superior to every American because she's like, but they're all so dumb, <laughs> which is just, like, really fun to play with that. Yeah, she's like, I get that I'm not as rich as they are, but they don't understand me, so. Yeah, but at least I don't have a terrible nickname, right? Like right. <laughs> Yeah. At least I prefer to go by Margaret. Yes. So I too was fascinated by all of the class content, mm -hmm. which really permeated basically every page of the book yeah. from start to finish. I pulled out so many lines about class and I just wanted to share a few of them. Please. As Margaret's boarding the ship, she observes men and women in plain sensible outfits were boarding on the lower decks while the gangways above were packed with people arrayed in the grandest fashions. By virtue of clothing alone, it was not at all difficult to tell which passengers were steerage and which were first class. Presumably, the second class passengers were the ones boarding somewhere in the middle. This next line, like, really just, like, hit me in the heart. I saw a thin girl in a kerchief and gray wool dress who seemed to be watching me somewhat enviously from farther down the quay. I realized then, with a start, that my appearance made her think that I was a young lady of privilege. And this is where the author really kind of like plants the seed of another theme that we see throughout the story, which is this idea of like role reversal mm -hmm. and where else Margaret could have landed if her circumstances had been different. And my grandmother always used to say the phrase like, but for the grace of God, go I, right? because my family is Jewish and she was really lucky that her parents came to Canada at a time when they easily could have been killed in Europe. And I kept thinking about that line over and over as I was reading this book, because like that little girl in the kerchief and the gray wool dress that Margaret is describing in her first moments on the ship, like, I hate to say it, but that little girl died. Certainly died. Yeah. And we know, again, like, as you were saying, Kelsey, mm -hmm. we know at the outset that even if we're not sure if Margaret is going to make it like we can be fairly certain that this girl who is boarding with the steerage group isn't going to make it. And for Margaret to have that awareness that not only would she most certainly have been in this group without Mrs. Carstairs in the mix, but also that like yeah, the optics to everybody else is that like she belongs yes. with this upper class group, like that's that's kind of a mind fuck for a kid. Mm -hmm. I thought I also marked a passage. Can I read also? Yes, please do. Okay, so I marked a passage that's like a little later, and she's like describing the sense of the ship, right? So it's like mm. the way that the ship is set up. And she says, I have no sense of what the conditions are like down in steerage, and I hope it's not too dreadful. William's stories of his transatlantic voyage were horrid and haunting. I have little sense of what is happening anywhere other than the first class areas. Part of me would like to go down and see steerage for myself, but the idea of being able to pass through the locked gates at will while others cannot is terribly offensive to me. I think it would be contemptuous. In the lift, Stephen told me that a number of first class passengers have done just that, laughing when they returned and talking about how much fun it was to go, quote, slumming. So despite my curiosity, I have no intention of doing that myself. And I just was like, this is so smart. Like this whole paragraph from a writing stance is incredible, right? Like you're giving us information about the ship, information about the character, and that important like locked gate 
note of like, we are allowed to go in, but they're not allowed to come out is like such a fascinating thing to show through a child's perspective. Because I do think that like children generally have a sense of like justice that is not permeable, right? Like they're like, it's not fair. And I don't care what the explanation is. Like it should be fair. And like, Mm -hmm. I just loved this passage because I was like, you're doing so much as a writer and for this character. And you're just really showing that like, not only does she see that girl and know that she should be with her, but she's like intently aware of the fact that like that girl cannot come be her. Like there's no passage for her to this side of the ship. And like, you see that when they're loading onto the lifeboats, when she's like, it's only us up here, right? Like I can see everyone else down there hooting and hollering and having a great time, but like there are locked gates between us. As I heard you read that passage aloud, and then as I listened to you talk about it more, it actually feels like painfully contemporary Mm -hmm. in the ways that different people sort of process and exercise or don't exercise their privilege and how they situate themselves in their privilege. Like, I feel as though if Margaret, I feel like if Margaret lived in 2022, she is like, you know, and we'll remove the whole situation where she's kind of posing as a first class passenger. We'll assume that she's for all intents and purposes, an upper middle class teenager. Yeah. And she in this situation is actually very Gen X and that she's like aware of the fact that like she should not be throwing her money around or like observing people in communities that perhaps do not have the same privileges that she has. She does not want to like parade through marginalized communities and like look at them the way her elders seem to do. And then like on the flip side, if we take all of these other passengers and move them into a 2022 context, they're kind of like, quite frankly, like the rich white people who walk through marginalized communities and pretend that they're maybe like making donations to make things better but then proceed to go out to dinner after and like make fun of what they saw there. Right. I mean, I think that the author does a really good job with this of like very early in the book. I do not remember where she talks about like rich women in London coming over to where the orphanage is and doing their like one little volunteer thing and then going back and bragging about how they went slumming. And like that mirror of her seeing that and being like, you're not actually helping you're doing this to make yourself feel better and this and then you're going and making fun of us and then when given the opportunity her saying no I'm absolutely not doing that is like very beautiful to me right of her being like I have the privilege to do this I do actually kind of want to know what's going on down there but I know how it made me feel when people came and gawked at me and so I'm not going to do that and I was like this is this little girl she's so cute <laughs> she's so smart so cute So cute. So now I think we have to talk about Robert because Robert is really her, her number one connection to what's happening (laughs) below decks. So Robert is kind of where things get like eerily similar to (laughs) the James Cameron movie, because of course, Margaret is our Rose in Mm -hmm. this situation. Again, like I know that she is not born into privilege, but she is living on the ship, the same life. She's in first class. Yeah, she's living the same life that Rose lived in the movie. And then Robert is our Jack. And he's a little bit different than Jack in that he works on the ship. He's a steward. And so he's responsible for like really tending to everything that the first class passengers want, need, desire, request. Mm -hmm. 
Jack, of course, was just like lucky to be on yeah. the ship as an immigrant. We all know how that went for him. But <laughs> it's a similar like forbidden love. And they're also younger. Um, younger. Margaret, as you yeah. mentioned, is 13. Robert is 17. And so it is, it's much more PG, of course. I mean, yeah. you can't really get like more PG, more PG, <laughs> especially relative to like that drama, like one of your French girls moment mm-hmm. and that carriage steam window thing. None of that's happening in this no. book, but <laughs> it's this very sweet, like slow burn love story where they're connecting in these moments when Robert is doing his job and bringing mm-hmm. Margaret things she really wants him to interact with her like they're friends. She wants him to call her by her first name. He tells her he's not supposed to do that. And she like very comfortably flirts right back with him and basically is like, I'd be willing to overlook that if you would do it. She's (laughs) very confident with him, which I loved. And they, they connect in just like a really sweet way. She's always very excited for him to come to her room. He brings her hot chocolate and cookies every night, which like dreamboat. And yeah, again, because I knew it was coming, I was like, no. (laughs) (laughs) I loved Robert's character, though. Like, I think, so I grew up in a family where, like, we had enough money for food, but not enough money to, like, have fancy anything. And I remember, like, in high school and college being in situations like this where it's, like, you're surrounded by people who have had entirely different upbringings than you. And the only person who laughs at any joke you have is the waiter. Mm. Right? And it's because, like, you and the waiter are the same. And there is, like, this kind of innate knowledge of, like, oh, we are doing something else, right, than, like, everyone else is doing. Our experience of the world is separate from theirs. And like, I loved that they gave, that the author gave her Robert, right? This like a crush, but a crush who understood her Mm -hmm. and was like, oh, like you're cute and I'm not allowed to flirt with you. And she's like, yes, you are because I too am poor, right? Like, (laughs) which is adorable. Like it's fun. And like, I don't know, there's a version of this book where you have her like fall for some rich boy and that like, they get married, right? And she just like works her way up into a wealthy class. And I don't think that that is ever realistic, really. And this is, right? It makes perfect sense that you would fall in love with the boy who brings you hot cocoa and cookies every single night. (laughs) Why wouldn't you? I'm married and I would fall in love with that boy like very quickly. There's some other person bringing me hot chocolate and cookies every night. He'd be like, well, I don't know about our marriage anymore. It was good while it lasted. (laughs) Yeah, you you tried, but... There was no yeah. hot cocoa and cookies. Yeah. Again, like still willing to give out Matt's contact information to anybody who would like to offer suggestions to him about bringing me hot chocolate because he could be that boy. I mean, there's also the big romantic gesture of um, Mr. Carstairs sending the gajillion flowers to the room. <laughs> A lot of romance in this book. There's just like so many opportunities for success here. It's like a handbook, really. <laughs> okay, so we all know... We all know that the Titanic is going to sink. So we don't need to belabor that point too much. Mm -hmm. What I do want to talk about is how artfully the author sets this up. And it it comes back to the hot chocolate, actually, Mm -hmm. because it is only thanks to the hot chocolate that Margaret begins to get the sense that something is wrong. Robert brings her her hot chocolate as usual. And she describes the fact that her hot chocolate, like the mug or the cup that that it comes in, is shaking. Yeah. She's like, hmm, that's kind of weird. 
And then she begins to hear weird noises in the hallway outside her room. And she describes it as just like a change in the feeling on the boat. And I Mm -hmm. loved that. Like, I love that this is a girl who trusts her instincts. Yeah. And it's probably because she's had to rely on her instincts through so many difficult things in her young life. And she, like Robert and presumably most of the people in steerage who she's never gotten to interact with, is keyed into the impending disaster long before Mrs. Carstairs and her wealthy peers. Right. So it, it's very much like the movie. Like we have Robert and and then we have Margaret because Robert has basically said to her, like, this is only a drill, but not really. I would not. Mm-hmm. I would not dilly-dally is sort of what he says. Mm-hmm. Like, like, yes, only a drill. This is perfectly normal that we're asking you to go to the lifeboats, but like, don't waste time. Yes. And now we have Margaret who's pushing Mrs. Carstairs to like, get out of bed. Like, I know that you're pissed that you spent all this money and now you have to get out of bed, but like, this is maybe something you should actually worry about. And of course this leads to this awful situation where like nobody took the possibility of something bad happening seriously. Everybody's just like, everybody thinks that they're literally unsinkable and they're so complacent. And so now everybody's in a situation where they like really do not have the time to problem solve. But the twist is even if they had had that time where there was never going to be enough space, like right. they just did not have the room in the lifeboats, but they did not fill the, the lifeboats to full occupancy. There were hundreds of other people that could have been saved had the lifeboats been used more efficiently and effectively. Yeah. I was thinking about this a lot because there's something like really just bone chilling about the idea of like your crush coming to your door and being like, if I were you, I would put on my life vest and I would run to the deck. Like, it's just a thing I would do. Don't worry. No reason to worry, but run. Right. Like, and that is very much the tone of that whole, like there's like four diary entries where the tone is essentially just like blood curdling panic right? Where like you're being told by everyone around you, it's fine. And you know, in your gut, it's not fine. And like she mentions, right? Like hearing the engine, she's like, there's no more engine sound, right? Like that's really concerning to me. Yeah, that seems and bad. She's like, yeah, she's right to be. But I found it like so just like terrifying the way that the crew had, I'm certain was instructed and had to be very calm and very much like, everything's fine. You're fine. Because if you come over the loudspeaker and say, we're sinking, people are going to panic and they're going to herd and like destroy the lifeboats and no one will be saved. Right. So there's like this weird balance of like, you're trying to convince these rich people that you have their best interests in mind without telling them you will die if you don't get on this lifeboat, which is like a nightmare. Yeah. And Margaret's caught between like both of these worlds Mm -hmm. because she is technically part of this first class, but she is, as we've talked about, like way more comfortable with the folks who are in second class and in steerage. And certainly she's the most comfortable with Robert. And so she goes to find him because she realizes that like things are getting chaotic on the deck. And we get this really heartbreaking, sweet moment because as you said, Kelsey, like it's clear that Robert, along with the rest of the crew, has been instructed to stay calm. Yeah. But they have this moment together where he's clearly not calm. Like he's just a kid who saw this great opportunity to have a job and like do something cool. And his future is being destroyed as a result of it. They have this conversation where they talk about how old they are. And I'm getting chills just thinking about Mm -hmm. it. He says like, I would have been 18 in August. 
He already knows. He knows how this story ends. Um, he asks if he can kiss her. He wants to have a kiss to remember. Yeah. Um, and they they mess it up the first time, which I loved. Like, it's a bad <laughs> kiss. So real. I'm so glad it wasn't like fireworks immediately. And so they have another kiss that's better. He gives her a letter to share with his mother. We see him being vulnerable. Yeah. And that's the only moment that he's allowed to be vulnerable because he has to do his job. Yeah. And also, I think, like, there is a knowledge if you're in that position of, like, I'm the last one off this boat, right? Like that's that's the knowledge of any like work job, right? Where it's like, oh, everyone else, it's my job in customer service to make sure that everyone else is happy before I deal with myself. And so it's like, yeah, if you know how many seats there are on the lifeboat and you know how many people are on the boat and you work on the boat, you're like, yeah, I'm going down, right? Like <laughs> that's it. That's the whole thing. And so it's like, it's very haunting that from the beginning he's like everything's fine but if I were you I would go Mm -hmm. the like inherent knowledge of like I'm not though right like I don't get to go I don't get to put on my life vest and go right and she like checks his life vest before she leaves the idea that like he wasn't even wearing it because he was like it doesn't it doesn't matter Oh, it's so heartbreaking. It's even more heartbreaking now that we're talking about it. And and because she has this relationship with Robert and she kind of knows the real deal, Margaret really struggles when she does get to that top deck and she's presented with choices about being saved. That tension within herself continues all the way until the end of the book. She does manage to get into a boat. There's some weird like moments where like she is offered a spot, but then she's not offered a spot because she is an employee. Like Mm -hmm. we're bringing a lot of those class complications back in. She does get on the boat with Mrs. Carstairs though. And there's these like really intense, beautifully written cinematic moments where, you know, we get the description of, again, things that we are familiar with from the movie, the band still playing until the very last minute, the ship breaking in half. And then like, oh, I'm getting, again, chills. Like Margaret describes in great detail the sound of people screaming right. and how that yeah. was the very worst part. But I didn't know this part of the story, which was that there was only one lifeboat that went back. To yeah, try I also did not know that. To, yeah, yeah, to gather survivors. And that was the boat that Margaret was on. Yeah. And so we, we hear that account of the lifeboat going back, um, of saving four people, one of whom actually ended up passing away in the mm-hmm. end anyway. We also get the rescue. We we learn about how um, these lo- these lifeboats were ultimately saved by another ship. Mm-hmm. But then we get into something called survivor's guilt, um, which is really heavy stuff for, yeah, for a middle grade reader. Yes. And as we begin to wrap up, I just wanted to read a couple of lines from that section because I just I know for a fact that I did not appreciate no. any of this when I was a kid. She writes when kind of reflecting on the experience of being part of the group that went back, fear seems a paltry excuse. We were all afraid that night. I know I did not want to die, but neither did I want to doom others to their helpless frozen fate. Although I suppose that is exactly what I did by virtue of taking my seat on boat four in the first place. I doomed Robert. I doomed complete strangers. She also writes, most of all, I hope I can learn how to forgive myself for still being alive when so many others are not. Um, Part of me would like to stay with my grief forever, but that would not do justice to the sacrifices that have been made on my behalf. As long as I live, I will never forget the great courage shown by Robert and so many others. I only hope that I can live up to their fine example. And then there's this other moment that she had with Mrs. Carstairs that like really 
just broke me where she just looks at Mrs. Carstairs and says, thank you for I should have been in steerage. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting the way that this book is done because we've been talking a lot about like her awareness of the fact that like steerage exists, but we haven't really talked about the fact that like in most of her descriptions of steerage, there's like a light hint of jealousy where she's like, they're all partying over there. And right. I'm surrounded by people who are like talking about stupid American things that I don't care about and playing card games. I don't understand. Right. And like, even when she's on the boat deck, like getting ready to board, she's like, they're dancing in steerage. And like the switch from being like, that's where I belong. And that's where I want to be to being like, I should have been with them is just so wrenching, right? Of like, it should have been me. And like, that's awful. (laughs) The fact that this is a 13 year old girl, right? That's the rest of your life. You're going to live with that. And like, I don't know. It's so sad. And it's also just amazing to me that I was like reading this at 12. (laughs) Like, what was I doing? (laughs) Yeah. And, And because there is like, there's a happy ending, but there's not really. Like, that's what's so complicated about this book because it's like, yes, Margaret, our main character, the person who has been our like proxy through this whole experience, she survives and that's great, but she is so unhappy and she is plagued mm-hmm. by the survivor's guilt. Yeah. Something that I, I didn't quite understand, like I'm not 100% clear on whether or not Margaret Ann Brady was a real person. Yeah, I also was not clear on that. I don't know that it matters. I don't know that it matters either. I was just curious because there is an epilogue that talks about how Margaret Ann Brady lives to be 94 years old and does all this amazing advocacy and philanthropic work. And so I think if there's any part of it that matters, it's it's that part because I'm curious having like, been introduced to this person if this was a real story like i am i am interested in what she did with this experience um i would imagine maybe she's sort of like a composite of a bunch of people that were on the yeah. ship and whose like diaries were found but anyway i loved this book i have so many thoughts i want to watch the movie it might <laughs> have reawakened my own like titanic mania kelsey yeah i feel like i know where you land on this but tell us more tell us definitively what was this experience like? Did this book hold up or did it let you down? I loved it. I think this book right. slaps. I would recommend it to all adults. <laughs> like, I, I think it's great. I think this is a fun book. It's a Obviously, it's a short read because it's middle grade. But like, I read it in one night and had a really nice time reading it and felt like I feel like there's a form of literature that is rare that like leaves kind of a like black hole in the middle of your body where you're like, oh my God, I'm so tired. Like, I feel like I just got punched. That is like a, it's hard to pull off. And I think this book does it. Plus it has a ribbon bookmark. Plus it has a ribbon bookmark, which is the fanciest of all books. Yeah. It's very classy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. First first class only. (laughs) Other than Voyage and the Great Titanic, Kelsey, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? I just, I'm a little late to this, but I just read um, The Secret Life of Church Women, and it is incredible. Have you read it? No, I've been wanting to, though. It's been on my list. It's so good. I loved it. And I'm also reading, I'm just looking up the name of this author because I cannot remember it. Hold on. The novel is called Search, and it is by Michelle, I don't know how to say her name, Hunevin? Hun. H-U-N-E-V-E-N. And that's what I'm reading currently. It's about, it's like 
a very light, fun book about like a church search committee where they're trying to like find a new pastor. Lots of drama. It's fun. Oh, that sounds really good. I, you and I could probably talk about this for additional hours, but mm-hmm. my, my work in progress, the manuscript I'm working on is set in the evangelical community. So I am looking love for it. all kinds of church content. This one's not evangelical, but it is good at like, it's like Unitarian, Universalist, um, okay. but it's very good at like the drama of like these people you're surrounded by that like you don't necessarily want to be friends with, but whom you are stuck in tight circles with anyway. <laughs> yeah. I want all just like the church book. So I'm definitely adding that to my TBR and listeners. I will include links to those suggestions in the show notes for this episode. Kelsey, you have a podcast. You have a book, which I've already talked about. You are wearing your podcast merch. I am. It's just- new. Yeah, you did not hear this from me. I love the podcast, Normal Thank Gossip. You. I loved your book. Like, plug away. What should our listeners be checking out and how the, how can they find you? Yeah, I think that's about it. Um, my book came out last summer. It's called God Spare the Girls. Um, it's a novel about two girls whose father is an evangelical pa- pastor who gets caught having an affair. So la, 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 big drama. Um, but it just came out in paperback, which is my favorite kind of book because you can fold it in half. You can throw it in your tote bag and it's not too heavy. So that's Great what I have summer. to read. Great for summer. Perfect to, you know, put a beer on, keep your beer from falling over at the beach. Very mm-hmm. important. Yep. Um, and then I also host a podcast called Normal Gossip where we just um, gossip. We just read. I just do gossip from regular people. So that's but that's about it. You can find me. I'm on all social medias at, at McKinney Kelsey and I'm online all the time. I I really appreciate you in all of your online time and all of your endeavors spending this time with me. This was so much fun. And it was such a thrill, (laughs) such a thrill. Um, If I ever feel like I need to reread another like deeply upsetting (laughs) historical fiction, fictionalized diary of a child, uh, I'm going to, you're going to be my first call. Yeah. Let me know. I'm, I'm, I'm game. (laughs) Great. Thank you, Kelsey. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>